Welcome to Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Hi all and welcome back to another fantastic edition of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. So today we're going to have a little look back on the third test because I know you all tune in to listen about cricket because that's pretty much all I've got. And not only is it all I've got, it's mostly unintelligible and also probably incorrect. But you know what? I'm just going to keep talking about it anyway because it gives me an outlet to get out frustrations or thoughts or all of the above. So today, yes, we'll look back on the third test that was completed yesterday and look at the game itself and the few incidences that occurred and talk about uh, sledging and the perception of what people are doing, whether it's right or wrong, and whether Shane Warne will ever learn to keep his mouth shut. So without further ado, let's move on to the program. the first thing we can talk about is is how good is it to see a test go five days and to see all the facets of test cricket come to the fore. Um, I know that there was a a lot of people that uh, I listened to and that I spoke to who were disappointed about the fact that the game was so slow and that the game so far, the scoring's been so slow and that it should be, you know, it's boring to watch and why would I bother? (laughs) Honestly, cannot understand that. I mean, it's test match cricket, and we're not out here to score 400 runs in 50 overs like they try to in one days or score 220 in 20 overs like they do in T20 cricket. You expect teams and players to play for the long haul and to set up players and, and have batsmen not giving their wickets away and for bowlers to have to work hard to find a way to get through. And even though there are pieces of the game where you would think that maybe they need to push on a little bit harder than they are, the point being sometimes you've got to look at the bowling and say, well, the bowlers are doing their job. So um, there was criticism of uh, Pajara, um, yeah, Pajara again sorry, with his slow scoring, but he batted exactly like this two years ago and everyone praised him to the hilt. And just the fact that he doesn't have uh, someone like Coley coming in behind him who will generally push the game on in a positive fashion, that's about the only reason I can see as to why India might be getting caught up and slowing down. I don't think Pajara's batting any differently. I'm sure if you compared the figures and and how many runs, he scored more runs last time, but the the scoring rate that he batted, I'm sure it's pretty similar to how it was two years ago when he got praised by everybody about how well he batted. And now... They're having a go at him saying he's not scoring fast enough and he's holding up the game and he's putting India under pressure. So I think that's more about the fact that of the guy who's not there in the, the captain than the way that Pajara is batting. But having said that, five days, and even though it, we lost so much uh, play to rain on the first day, we were able to catch it up by starting half an hour early every day. So we got a good five days in, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, you know, you'd prefer to see Australia win. Um, you'd prefer to see Australia play better. You'd prefer to see Australia do a lot of things better than we did. But 
as a game of cricket, if you're just watching it as a game of cricket, it was fascinating. Uh, if you go back to the start, I suppose, if you look at it all the way through, uh, Australia were two for 206 in their first innings at one stage, and they only scored 338, and that was a massive underachievement from the team at that point in time. They they had to be looking at 400, 450 for that first inning score, which sets up the rest of the game for them. By only making 338, which is a middling sort of first inning score, uh, albeit Australia's highest innings of the summer so far, it put pressure on them again to try and have to force the game. It was just poorly executed by our, well, eight of our bats. Eight of our batsmen totaled 31 runs. So that tells you exactly what you need to know. 307 runs were scored by three batsmen and uh, and 31 were scored by eight batsmen. Um, we should have done a hell of a lot better in that first innings. Um, Smith's century was superb and probably uh, always going to happen given that he'd failed for how many innings people want to say he failed for and he hadn't scored a test century and how many innings it was and uh, he was probably destined to come out and, and, and do something good and and batted as he always does. Um, Manus Labashain's luck continues to run for him, so he really needs to be using it at the moment as much as he can before it starts turning around on him. Some might say that that happened in the Shield this year. He didn't have much luck in the Shield games and maybe he's just getting back now, but uh, his two innings were terrific. And Will Pekowski's first innings as a test batsman was fantastic to watch. Um, if you're looking from the outside, you'd already be saying, well, that pull shot's one that I'd be focusing on. I'd be bowling to him a lot shorter and a lot more often than the Indians actually did, uh, not only to do with his pull shot, but his, uh, you know, the fact that he's been hit in the head so often. That's the kind of thing you'd be focusing on. And they seem to Go pretty easy on him to start off with. Maybe they just thought he was going to be an easy out, but uh, he proved not to be. Following that 338, India scraped their way to 244, which at different times looked like they were going to make a lot less. But it did give Australia a lead of 94 runs. Um, again, though, that was thanks more to three runouts from Australia rather than the bowlers finding a way to get through that batting lineup. Um, and three terrific pieces of fooling Hazelwoods uh, from mid off when he was just picked it up and threw in the one action, was just absolutely brilliant. So we had that problem. Once again, we found that Australia's bowls were incapable of finding a way to get uh, Ravi Jadeja out cheaply. He finished 28 not out, and even though he got a fractured thumb at the very end of that innings, Australia still couldn't get him out. And that's proving to be a problem, that a guy who is batting seven for India and really isn't probably a number seven uh, and should be really the top of their tail has been causing Australia so many problems. From that point on, we move to Australia's second innings where they reached six for 312 declared. And again, Smith and Labashain were the, the two who really pushed along that. But it was terrific to see Cameron Green make his first Test 50, despite the fact that he got dropped a couple of times and absolute sitters as well, um, to show that at number six he can do that. And then perhaps even more impressive was the fact that when we needed him to move on and build the score so we could make a declaration, he took the bit between the teeth and scored 30-odd runs in a very short space of time. I think it was four or five overs. So he showed that 
that's what we want our number six to be able to do. Our number six has to be able to come in at four for nothing and see his way through the attack and just build an innings, or we need him to come in at four for 350 and score really quickly. That's exactly the kind of six we've been looking for since Mike Hussey retired, and given the guy can bowl a bit as well, really handy. So it was great to see that innings from Cameron Green, especially after the 21 ball duck in the first innings. Um, Jasper Boomer was just superb with the ball in both innings again. Zero luck, brilliant bowling. Um, you have to feel for him sometimes, and the fact that he keeps getting that smile on his face when something doesn't quite go right for him is, is an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing to see, really. Um, I can guarantee you he must be looking forward to being uh, being able to bowl at the Gabba. Um, then we had a little bit of, in that second innings, it was interesting, the fact that uh, Richard Pant had been hit on the elbow while he was batting. Uh, and this was after, in the first innings, uh, while he was keeping, he dropped two catches that he probably should have taken. And his keeping overall was generally very sloppy. And then India brought out Ritterman Saha as a replacement keeper for him in the second innings, which is, I mean, Saha is a much more accomplished gloveman than uh, Pant. Um, and Saha took four catches and four of the wickets of the six that fell. And yet Pant then turned up to bat in the second innings despite this injury. Now, this is all now within the rules of the game. Um, they were changed a couple of years ago uh, where subfielders before this were absolutely not allowed to go into a specialist fielding position like wicketkeeper. It had to be one of the players who had been named in the team. Um, and then, and something I don't know, I haven't looked into it, but I, my understanding of the rule was that if a player has been off the field with an injury, that they then cannot bat higher than number seven when they return in the next dig. And yet, here, Pant came in at number five to cover for Vahari, who was also injured with his um, his hamstring. So it was an interesting sort of situation there that you sort of feel, I suppose if you're an Australian supporter, you'd feel like it would, you'd been used a little bit. But it's completely within the rules, and um, it's something they might like to do every time, Get make sure that Pant gets injured when he's batting and then they can bring Sahe out to keep for him and he can bat all the time. More to the point, Australia still, after three series, have yet to come up with a plan of how to bowl to Richard Pant. Um, our tactics were average, the bowling was lethargic and the field placements were questionable. Um, at a time when we'd taken an early wicket and we were looking to push for victory, surely our bowlers and our fields when are looking should be looking to just tie him up and make himself get himself out. It just doesn't seem like they're doing that. They seem to be bowling too wide. They give him too many chances to go at the ball. And, you know, he had some luck, but you get that. And and if you back yourself, that's what happens. Um, and he, you know, he, he got to 97 before he finally played one shot too many and, and, and got out and walked off disappointed. And I sort of would have thought to myself, well probably lucky to have made 97. He'd been dropped at least twice. Um, but that innings changed the whole course of the match. And not only did it change the course of the match, it, it it brought India not only into a position where they could actually draw the match with comfort, but they were actually in a position to win it. And to be honest, you could look at it now. If Vahari hadn't been injured, um, they may well have gone on to win it. Vahari and Ashwin then... 
uh, batted for 43 overs to finish the day, uh, one of them unable to run, one of them unable to stand up properly. So in the end, that may well have helped their cause uh, because they both only had to concentrate on not being dismissed rather than looking to score runs on a pitch that was offering very little for any of the bowlers. If they'd been in a position where they could both swing freely or bat normally, perhaps that might have brought about their dismissal. That's a very long string, but you just don't know. Um, Their patience was rewarded. And again, even though both of them had some fortune while they were batting, you've got to have that. If you're going to bat out a day for a draw like that, you've got to have some luck go your way. Uh, We saw when Usman Khawaja saved Australia in Pakistan a couple of years ago. There was a bit of luck going for the team that day, but you need to have that to be able to, to bat all day for a draw. Um, Australia dropped four catches on the day, three by the keeper, um, and any of those, if they'd been taken, could have opened up the match for Australia. But who knows? Maybe it, maybe it wouldn't have. We just don't know. The fact that Australia couldn't take a wicket in that last session uh, and could only take well, one or probably two in about, what was it, 96 overs, given that the first wicket fell on the third over of the day, um, says a lot about the way the wicket played, uh, about the way that India stuck to their task, and about maybe how tired Australia's bowling is starting to get. Um, In the long run, the result of the Test match is a terrific one for cricket. I mean, India will be celebrating... And so they should. If if Australia had done this, Australia would be celebrating in the same sort of fashion. It doesn't mean that Australia uh, are incapable of winning the next test. Um, Certainly, if they can get themselves in the same position again, they would back themselves to win. But overall for cricket, just in the result and what we've spoken about so far, it was a terrific test match. And that's what I hope that we end up remembering in the future. Just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. There was some disappointment within the test match itself for a number of things. I guess we again we're in a situation where there are two sides to the story again, and, and once again you're going to probably believe the side of the story that you want to believe without taking in the possibility of the other side. Um, and I guess the first thing is the um, the crowd uh, on the day three and day four, where on day three uh, some Indian players reported to the, their officials that they had been racially abused by the crowd, uh, and yet no, nothing at this point had been found or whatever, but they reported the fact that it happened. Then on day four, Mohammed um, Siraj was down on the boundary and he was copying it and he came in and pointed out the, the people who he believed were responsible and obviously must have uh, recounted what they had said to him and the game stopped for 10 minutes, the umpires got involved, the police got involved, the security got involved and six people were then escorted out, uh, interviewed and I believe uh, at least charged but then taken out of the ground. Now, there's, there are problems all around, and, and obviously the first one is um, the continued, uh, what's the word, um, the belief that of Australian 
crowds, all sections of Australian crowds, that they can say whatever they like once they get into a ground when they've paid their money and that they shouldn't be held accountable for it. Everyone knows there's no room for racial abuse. And in cricket especially, I mean, if you're going to go to, you go to the footy, go to any of the footy codes and you're in the crowd and you want to, you know, have a crack at the ref or have a crack at players about the way they're playing and nothing else, then that is, whether it's necessarily soon as acceptable, but you do that and that's fine. You can barrack. You can go to the, you can go to football and you can barrack. But is there a need of that at cricket? Is there a need to go and get stuck into individual players on the field who are just down on the boundary and waiting to field the ball? Is, is that a necessary thing? Maybe I'm just getting old and maybe my, uh, I'm cloud, my vision's clouded in certain things, but I just don't understand why that. I don't mind the barracking part. I mean, we've, I've been at crowds when we've been on our trips away and we've, we've sort of called out to Kevin Peterson, we've called out to Stuart Broad, um, we've called out to our own guys in Shane Watson and, and Nathan Lyon, and you're sort of just trying to get a wave or something like that, you know, but but nothing nasty and certainly nothing racial. And it doesn't matter, I don't think, that these six people were kicked out and the people around them, and one of them was apparently an Indian Australian who said that he didn't think that they said anything that was racially toned or that was offensive. Um, and he has been interviewed and, and quoted as saying that. So what does that make you think as to what the actual player heard? Now, why, the player certainly wouldn't go through with this if he didn't think he had been racially abused. So to me, and you know, not all Indians speak English fluently, perhaps he's mistaken something, that doesn't matter. Why are these guys who have been thrown out, why are they even getting stuck into this player at all anyway? Is it is it necessary? Um, and I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I am getting old and clouded in my vision, but I don't see the necessity for it at cricket. I can, I can, you know, you can have fun with a guy, but if you're saying anything that's even getting close to the mark of being um, abusive either personally or racially, then... As a person in the crowd, you've overstepped the line and you should wear the consequences. And it makes Australians as a whole look bad. And once again, you know, it comes to social media. Social media blows it up, especially in India. You know, they're all, you know, they've seen it. They hear the side of the story that has been given, which is fair enough, and they get stuck in Australians as a whole and suddenly we're all tainted with the same brush. Um, So then... We come back to what's happening on the field and our behaviour slip up. And I think that our players are beginning to, uh, our Australia's, you know, we have the deterioration of the new ideals uh, given the pressure that has happened in the last two test matches. Um, Because we've had a situation where the captain, Tim Payne, not only swore at umpire uh, Paul Wilson in regards to what he believed as an inconsistency in the DRS, of which Blocker had no say it at all. He also swore at Ravi Ashwin while he was batting in the final session as Australia was trying to find a way to get the five wickets for victory. So that's, you know, I think that's crossing the line. And and Ashwin quite rightly withdrew a couple of times while while Payne kept talking. Why do, why do we why is he getting to the point where he's swearing? I mean that's just obvious frustration. 
um, Labashane and Wade through the match were irritated during different intervals of the match. And I would, from what I saw, I believe pushing harder than they needed to in regards to whether it be sledging or appealing or all that kind of stuff. Um, you could once again start to see Steve Smith at that first slip showing obvious frustration in his mannerisms and, you know, and the arms going up and down and the, the hands to his head and all that kind of stuff. And all that sort of stuff starts to hark back to the days before Newlands for me and, and the way that it started off in this way, which might be seem inoffensive or whatever, but it then builds to something else. And we don't need that from this Australian team. We've worked so hard to get back to um, being, I don't know, nice guys, good guys, but just, you know, to be honest, just being decent people on the pitch and just trying to win games without trying to belligerently um, attack people. Um, So, look, and don't get me wrong, a lot of this comes back to the increasing listening in on what is happening on the field through the stump mics and the camera, the Fox camera above and all that kind of stuff. It's exacerbating all these problems. Um, if, If what is being said and done on the field is left in the hands of the officials, then any crossing of the line according to the laws can be handled by those running the game and not being broadly discussed and commented on by the public and the media and social media. Um, The running commentary over the last 24 hours has been all bad when it comes to Australia. Um, Tim Payne shouldn't have said what he did. Uh, It was disrespectful. Why doesn't he just concentrate on being a keeper? Because he dropped three catches on the day. Um, All that is negative. And Tim Payne came out to his credit this morning and he called his own press conference and he he addressed all of those and he apologised for all of the stuff that he did yesterday and for the fact that he got frustrated and he allowed that to come into his mood and into the team to the way he performed on the field. So that's terrific. But you just don't want to have to see that occurring again. Part of that is this stump mic. And at the moment, players don't know when it's on. And players should be made aware of when the stump mic is being turned up and they're being listened in on. And I don't know how you do that because you can't just have a sort of flashing light on the top of the stumps and starts flashing and everyone says, oh, hang on, careful what you're saying because stump mics are up. Um, It's an easy excuse to say that the players should already know that they could be being heard by six billion people and that they should treat it that way at all times because that's completely unfair. Shane Warne and Andy Simons were accidentally put to wear when they were not aware they were on air for a big bash game a couple of nights before that. And KO, who was owned by Fox Sports, came out and apologised completely and immediately. But there were no apologies for allowing Tim Payne's expletives to be aired all around the world. That's just considered fair game. And, you know, that's completely wrong because, you know, for the players, they don't know that it's happening and then there's no apology. But if two commentators say something when they don't know they're on air, they don't have to come on and apologise. They have the network come on and apologise for them. And then we sort of steer well clear of it, as Shane Moore did when the players started talking about it on the field. He said nothing, gutless prick. 
Anyway, and then after that, there was the incident where Steve Smith has now been accused of rubbing out Richard Pant's guard. And that's a problem because that's just perception. And the leading comments of commentators without knowing what is actually going on is causing all this. And then from that, it's exacerbated into social media. Now, everyone knows, basically, the way Steve Smith carries on. He walks up, often shadow batting. He stands there. He looks down the wicket. He does this, and then he marks out his own guard. And several people have come out today and said that exact thing. And if you go back and you look at um, highlights from previous games, everyone can see Steve Smith doing it. It's what he does. So he wasn't there rubbing out the guard. And if you look at him when he actually does it on the footage that was done, all he does is he walks up, faces up left-handed, puts his foot down the wicket as if he was playing a ball out of the rough, and then he marks centre. He's not rubbing anything out, he's marking centre. Because then Pant comes up after it, and he puts his bat in the three marks there. Leg stump, middle stump, off stump. So all three marks were still there. So, again, this has been pushed by the media pushing this, social media putting it on there, someone coming up and saying, look at this, Steve Smith rubbing this out, what a disgrace, and then everybody picking up on it. It's piss poor. And, you know, we all know Steve Smith isn't perfect when it comes to... <laughs> the way he was a captain and the way he held himself as a captain at times. But in this instance, it's just absolute rubbish. So now I guess we turn around and we come to talk a little bit, but not much, about Tim Payne. Um... The pressure is on his captaincy and his place in the team and has been consistently for the past two and a half years since he came into the job. And I know there are people out there listening um, who would completely agree with that point of view, that he shouldn't be in the team. But I don't really understand how people have that idea in their head. Tim Payne has been absolutely brilliant since his ascension to the captaincy after the Newlands crap. Um, he came into the team. He's spoken to the media all the time. He's calm when he speaks to the media. He has a bit of a laugh. He's straightforward with what he believes. And when he goes out onto the field, he's exactly the same, apart from maybe the last few days. He goes out. He does the job as a captain. He's terrible at reviews. There's no doubt about that. But apart from that, his captaincy and just his leadership on and off the field has been second to none. And he has saved Australian cricket almost entirely himself and Justin Langer. Once he retained, well, he is the captain of the team that retained the Ashes in 2019, um, there was a thought amongst many people, most of us, I guess, that thought that last season, 2019-20, was going to be his final test season. Um, now, whether or not COVID-19 has changed that for him or for the team or for the hierarchy, he's still here this season leading his team. Um, he's hoping to rectify their defeat two years ago when they came out to Australia and he was captain as well. So I guess the questions that will be asked over the next week was, does that make this coming out test, the fourth test, Does it make his, will that be his final test? 
or will he be looking to extend that to the proposed tour to South Africa, whether that goes ahead, or then into yet another Ashes series at home next summer? Maybe he wants that to be his last hurrah, or maybe the selectors or the team hierarchy want that to be his last hurrah. I don't know. There always seems to be this pressure on his batting rather than necessarily his glove work. I mean, stats lie. Stats don't always tell the truth. But as of right now, Tim Payne currently averages 32.37 as a test batsman. And that is behind only Adam Gilchrist and Brad Haddon as a batsman wicketkeeper for Australia in the history of test cricket. Um, beyond that, he is still by some margin the best gloveman in the country, this last test notwithstanding. And this is the problem, is that we've got this thing where many people have seen the rise of Alex Carey over the past two years, and that's fair enough. Alex Carey has done a great job in one-dayers and has at times played some scintillating innings for Australia in one-day cricket and short-form cricket. Um, And this is what Adam Gilchrist did in the two years prior to taking over from Ian Healy. And the thing that some people forget, I still think, is that Gilchrist had to do those two years and Healy copped this same criticism for some reason, saying that Gilchrist had to be in the team in front of him. And yet he came out and he scored a, he scored a test century at the Gabba, 160-odd, which was his highest test score, which is just brilliant. And he continued to make contributions as a batsman, but it was his, it was his keeping that was just flawless you know, at that time. And it was the reason he was still in the team. And it wasn't until his glove work started to fail on him that they finally made a decision to replace him. So having drawn a test that everyone thought this team should win, uh, along with scoring a duck in the first innings, and then probably having his poorest test match with the gloves in his career, uh, along with the escalation in his talking behind the stumps and the scrutiny of what he said, it's all combined into one big storm again to suggest that he is not the man anymore for all of those positions. And to me, this seems ridiculously unfair, given what he has done in the last three years. Soon enough, a successor, not only for the keeping position, but the captaincy will need to be found. And the first will have several contenders, all of whom would do a great job. And Kerry's there, but he's not necessarily going to be when he gets it. Josh Inglis from Western Australia... Um, uh, Philippi from Western Australia and the Sixers, um, Pearson from Queensland. Uh, there are several terrific contenders who are going to have an opportunity to get that wicket-keeping role. You would say Kerry is the rough front-runner, but that's not to say that he's going to get it. The second part is, is you know, not so easily decided, and... It is that which will continue to be hotly debated and discussed as Payne's time in the job comes to an end. It also seems that it may well be the reason that he has extended his tenure in the test team. There is absolutely no guarantee that Steve Smith will be offered the captaincy again. And if he is not, then is there any outstanding candidate right now putting their hand up to be the person to be Australia's test captain? I think that's where our problems lie not where Tim Payne's batting or keeping might be.
So as we look ahead to Brisbane, um, both teams have got injury concerns and I'm not sure how it's going to play out by the time you listen to this. Uh, we may already know or you may be listening to this years in the future and coming back to see exactly how wrong I could be. And I can already tell you that whatever it is, I am wrong. Um, in, yeah, India's injury problems uh, are with Vahari and Jadeja. Um, Vahari with his hamstring, Jadeja with his thumb, as well as Ashwin and Pant, but they appear to be a lesser degree given they both batted on the last day of the test. Uh, Ashwin had a back problem and Pant, obviously, that elbow where he was smashed in the arm. Going to Brisbane, the likelihood is, is that they will only require one spinner in the team, but they will need to somehow <laughs> replenish their batting stocks. I guess the first thing that I could see is that uh, Ritam and Saha could come back into the team and be the keeper, which would be great for India, and that would allow uh, Richard Pant to play just as a batsman only, and that would cover Jadeja's absence with uh, Pant batting at six and Saha coming in and batting at seven and keeping. Um, Fahari would still need to be replaced if he doesn't recover in time, which seems unlikely. And that would be perhaps just a straight swap with uh, Argawal, who missed Sydney for Vahari's inclusion, or we assume for Vahari's inclusion. So that leaves the bowling for India as Bumrah, Siraj, Saini and Ashwin. And the question that they then have to ask themselves is, are they happy going in with just the four bowling options? Despite the players missing due to injury and uh, for having babies, baby daughter for uh, for the captain I see this morning, uh, the team that they have has done its job in the past two tests, winning one and, and, and fighting for a draw in the other, and you would expect that they can be just as effective again. There are question marks in the Australian team over the fitness of Warner with his groin and Pukowski with his shoulder from fielding yesterday. Uh, there are also questions raised once again over whether or not Matthew Wade will get another chance after the method of his dismissal in the first innings of the Sydney Test. And to me, there must be some thought about Mitch Stark's effectiveness having just taken one wicket in 41 overs in Sydney, uh, notwithstanding the, fans, <laughs> the chances that went begging of his bowling and, and of course, all the bowlers. For me, and I, I highly doubt Australia would do this, I still believe that it's open that if everyone is fit, that uh, Will Pukowski could move to the middle order and move into that number five position and that Marcus Harris could be brought into open with Warner. Um, obviously, if either of the opener is not fit to play, then Harris will slot straight into that position, uh, which would, you expect, allow Wade to survive for another chance. Unless you want to go back to Travis Head, but I don't know that the selectors will necessarily do that. Or do they look at Moses Henriques, who's been sitting on the sideline watching for the last month uh, and has shown form enough in the one days that he played in the 220s and has shown form for New South Wales and would certainly be an experienced head to come in if they did decide that Matthew Wade's had his time. You can only imagine that Mitchell Stark will be retained for Brisbane, um, despite the fact that all the bowlers have done a fair amount of bowling. And uh, 
Although Pattinson, James Pattinson, who missed the Sydney squad after a fall at home, uh, well done, Jimmy, he's likely to be fit and back in the squad again for Brisbane. So he is an option to come in for Stark if they decided to make that change. But you know what? Let's. How about Michael Nisa? Now, to me, it's his home pitch. He would certainly stiffen the batting of the team uh, that needs some stiffening at the moment by the looks of it. Even if he's batting at nine behind Cummins, he's a pretty handy number nine. Um, he would finally be able to get his baggy green that he's been waiting an eternity to get a chance for. And we can finally see that if he can be the test player that he looks as though he can be. Um, I would have thought that at this stage, it's it's not really resting Stark and it's not dropping Stark, but I, I think we're just looking for someone who, we're looking for a bit more uh, penetration that perhaps Mike, uh, Mitchell Stark isn't quite giving us at the moment. And Nisa, who can move the ball around and can bowl line and length and can still bowl at a reasonable clip, not as fast as those other three we have, but good enough, on the bouncy Gabba pitch that he knows so well, is there any better time to give him an absolute chance to get out there and grab that baggy green and grab that chance for Australia? It's probably what I would do. But again, I'm not a selector. So which way do we go? How's the result go? Well, again, pretty much like last test, if India now win or draw in Brisbane, they will retain the Border Gavaskar Trophy that they won out here two years ago. Australia have to win to regain it. Australia has not lost in Brisbane since the 1988-89 test against the West Indies, and in that time have won 24 and drawn seven of those test matches. You would expect that both bowling attacks will enjoy the faster and truer surface that the Gabba offers from the other two pitches they've played on in recent times. However, catching has been the bane of both teams, and it has certainly cost Australia and it's certainly cost India in Adelaide. The old saying of catchers win matches may never be more prevalent than it will be in Brisbane. All righty, well, that's uh, all we've got. Uh, well, it's not all we've got time for, but uh, I don't want to bore you there for another half hour, an hour discussing all the same things you've probably heard or think yourself or think the exact opposite of and you are arguing as you listen to me talk. So that's where we stand at the moment with uh, one test to go in our, our test summer. Um, you can't say that it hasn't been good cricket and exciting cricket. Let's just try and keep all that controversial stuff out of the way and let's just hopefully just have a test match that is worth watching and is is uh, hopefully won by Australia. But whatever happens, let's just hope that there's a result and that the players get on and fight hard on the field without being nasty about it and then walk off and celebrate the fact that test cricket in Australia has actually occurred at all this year when there was every chance that it wasn't going to. Once again, thank you for tuning in and listening to my ramblings, and I hope you'll look me up again in another week and see what else I've been able to do on Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Cheers.